Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Nora Loretto. Hi. <laughs> Author, freelance journalist, one half of the Sandy and Nora podcast. Welcome to Shortcuts. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks. Today we're going to talk about human sacrifice. All of those essential frontline workers that we love so much, who we are feeding to the variants. Thank you very much for your service. Also, Rogers' legendary customer service and low, low internet bills, millions more will soon get to enjoy them. The consumer wins again. Today's episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Peter Jacobs, Rob Simpson, Sam Norman, Mackenzie Legere, Benjamin Atkinson, Matt Lisi, Raven Lukes, and Catherine Owen. Phew! Hi, this is Catherine. I'm a writer and editor from Vancouver, Edmonton. And I've just jumped off the treadmill where I've been listening to Canada Land, as always. It's refreshing, it's incisive, it's exciting. I love to hear the multiplicity of voices. And thank you so much for sticking to the truths that matter. So, Nora, I, I reached my breaking point on Saturday night. I've reached it before. You know, I'll reach it again. There are many things within me that can break. 
Mm-hmm. And here's what did it. I was on Twitter and I saw this CBC News Network clip. The person who posted to Twitter was the anchor, uh, CBC journalist Natasha Fatah. She tweeted, must watch. And then she posted this video, which is an interview with Dr. Michael Warner. One of my patients, you know, her husband was forced to go to work at a factory that had an outbreak because it wasn't on his shift. Uh, he didn't want to go to work, but he doesn't have any paid time off to, for sick leave unless he gets COVID. Well, guess what? He got COVID, the variant, and so did everyone else on his shift. And yesterday, I sent her to a quaternary care center to be on a heart-lung machine. I've never had a patient so close to death in my career. It took five doctors, actually 17 people yesterday, to keep her alive. And she's, she may still die, and she's in her mid-40s, and that didn't have to happen. And then she died, Nora, mm-hmm. and Natasha Fatah, she broke up a bit on the air. So you, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time with this too. And I'm not nearly as close to this as you are. So when you compare your anger from earlier today and how sad you're feeling now, what's the action that needs to be taken? We got to take the politics out of this. We need to galvanize us as a society. It's not about lockdown or not. It's not about this or that. It's about protecting people who keep us going. So that's the one that did it for me. Something just kind of snapped to action. And then I very rapidly after that saw a, a tweet from Dr. Irfan Dalla about the geographic breakdown of vaccines and COVID, but really the racial breakdown. And what he tweeted was, uh, Dr. Dalla, people at Jane and Finch are eight times more likely, eight times more likely than people at St. Clair and Rosedale to be hospitalized or to die from COVID. But they're four times less likely to be vaccinated. It's impossible not to be angry. And I agreed. And I got I got really angry. Some of that stuff went viral. Did you catch any of that? Yeah, I've been following this really closely as well. And um, the statistics that you just cited, those are from the city of Toronto, where we actually do have pretty decent racial and socioeconomic based information about who has gotten COVID and um, now, obviously, who's being vaccinated. That's not even really available in the rest of Canada. It is available in some locations, but there's not really a systemic collection of this information. But you can imagine that the patterns are going to be very, very similar because, of course, our society is similar from from city to city. You know, this is this is something that I've been writing about since the beginning. Like I wrote about this for the Washington Post. Uh, Sandy and Nora, our podcast, talked about this. I think we did our first episode on the intersection of white supremacy and COVID last April, at the beginning of last April. So coming up on a year ago, and I am just so tired of like how long it has taken for this to get into the mainstream in a major way. And the way that has happened is another wave of inequality built into our COVID response. And and in this case, that being the vaccine distribution. And so, I mean, I guess welcome to the ship of broken souls. This is death by policy. This is death by design. This is death along racial lines. I was reading this stuff. I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, All the banging of pots and, you know, God bless our frontline workers and thank you to the grocery checkout people. And now we're just like letting them, we're letting them die. And I got really upset. And I thought like, why aren't people on the streets? Like, Why are just these bozos for the anti-maskers on the streets? Like, have they kind of like, is it a branding thing? Like taking to the streets has now got a bad look. And I realized Mm. that people aren't taking to the streets because they're at work. 
Yeah. And it's like, well, what the fuck am I doing? And I've got a lot of opinions, Nora. I can get worked up about things, but I, I very rarely will say, we need to tell our politicians this, or everybody needs to do that. <laughs> like, it's just like a line that I'm uncomfortable with. And I, I crossed it and just said, like, enough is enough. There's nothing heroic or singular about that. It's what a lot of people were doing, and it was long overdue. And I guess the, the kind of media story that I want to kind of get people up to speed on, if they're not already, is that there was an uprising. There were pitchforks. It wasn't on the street. It was from our experts. It was from doctors and nurses on, on Twitter, a nurse, uh, Birgit Umegba. And she was saying, this is what we need from, from Doug Ford, paid sick days for all workers, lockdowns of all non-essential services, prioritize hotspots for vaccination, stop all residential and encampment evictions. Mm. And it was interesting because she went on to talk about how her daughter has been waiting to be reunited with her husband for 10 years, uh, hashtag prioritize family sponsorship. So I hate to use uh, jargon, but I think we're seeing an intersection of issues here that are all coming to a head. Yeah. It goes on as, as we saw the school boards. It's amazing to me, like our teachers who we send our kids to, fuck them. Like that's that's our attitude. Like you know, wh- why aren't we advocating for our teachers? Well, you know, it's coming on almost seventy thousand people signing a petition to do so, and then the boards pushing back against our against Doug Ford's education minister, who says, "Oh, they're very confident the school should remain open," and, and the boards just found a loophole. And um, medical officer for Peel Region, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, used discretionary powers under Section Twenty Two to close the schools, and the Toronto District School Board followed. So there's sort of a critical mass of rage from medical experts, doctors, people, teachers just refusing that I think created like an undeniable swell where um, it didn't necessarily happen on the streets, but it happened and, and the provincial government responded. I'll talk about the provincial government's response, but has a similar thing been playing out in Quebec? No, not exactly. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of experts who've been critical of the of the government, and that's been the case from the start. But the government here has been much more decisive in when they decide to close things down. And so uh, where I am in Quebec City, which is a city that I think has the uh, fourth highest number of cases in Canada per 100,000 people, we were told on Wednesday afternoon that schools would be closed down as of this week. And so we didn't have the same kind of government saying, oh, there's no problem, you know, versus our teachers saying, oh, yes, there is a problem. The, the government took action in a in a much more cohesive way. Uh, Doug Ford seems to be, you know, kind of operating within the dark and just like sticking his hand into this pile and into that pile and then hoping he gets the right pile. Uh, at some point, of course, he, he won't. But what I think is really fascinating is even though we have these experts uh, speaking out against government, and they have been doing this for a while, it is still the people with the most power within the system who are speaking out and who are getting the airtime. And this has been my biggest criticism of, well, no, one of my biggest criticisms of uh, the mainstream press from the start, which is that they have been over-relying on the most powerful voices within the medical system and not listening enough or in some cases at all to the people who are most impacted by these decisions. And so if you want to take one measure, let's look at uh, deaths in uh, the healthcare setting. There's been about three doctors who have died so far from COVID during the pandemic. And I say about because, of course, this is not necessarily being well reported. So this is three cases that we can confirm. There's been two nurses, one administrator, four uh, cleaners who obviously would have a job that would put them at risk of being in contact with uh, contaminated materials within a hospital setting. But 
There's been 27 personal care workers and healthcare aides who've died during this pandemic. And of those 27, the overwhelming majority were racialized and the majority of those workers were black. And so if you think of this pandemic from the workers' perspective, first and foremost, hurting the lowest paid, the most precarious and racialized workers, specifically black workers, this is the story and this is how we should be hearing this. But we don't. We hear a nonstop parade of the same experts who've become household names. There's obviously a place for these these people speaking out, but it is not going to be Michael Warner telling the government that someone has died that's going to change their position. And I want to remind people that across Canada, more than 23,000 people have died. This is the problem with how we conceptualize this pandemic. We prioritize and privilege the voices of the people with the most power and the folks, you know, the residences of long-term care, the folks who live with disabilities, who are unable to access services and who are afraid of getting COVID lest they will die. Those voices have been pretty much absent from the mainstream media unless there was a groundswell of attention on an issue or in the case of personal care workers, most of the attention on them has been obituaries. I mean... It's not that I disagree, Nora. It's just that, like, who gets the most airtime is not the most pressing issue right now. I think that there's a larger point, which I agree with, which is that we're we're just reflecting the inequalities in our choices of who gets airtime and who's given power on the air. And it would absolutely be better to hear from more nurses and from more long-term care workers. I, I agree with you. But it almost feels like there's like a critique of the Dr. Warners out there. There's a cynical urge in me to say, boy, are these guys doing a lot of media? Maybe they like the attention. But then I think, you know what? Fuck that. They're driven by purpose. They're pushing back hard with whatever power they have, whether that's a legitimate power or not. And and they are getting impact. So I, I, I do not criticize them. I think there is probably some criticism we could deal out to the media. But, you know, the processes by which the media would have to actually change its practices and needs to, to actually find those other voices and build out a Rolodex of those voices. Like right now, yeah, it does not surprise me one iota that, that they're like, OK, here's a doctor who's willing to kind of break the rules and speak. Let's put him on the air. Mm -hmm. And they have had an impact. The pressure did work on Ford. I mean, he did roll over and uh, like it's kind of a fucked up rollover. Like first we heard that phase two is going to be quickened to mid-May uh, and that that's when people, uh, not by age, but by their, their hot zone, were, you know, they were going to get the vaccination. And then when he finally actually made the announcement at the presser, no, it's right now, uh, as soon as possible, people 18 plus in hot zones are going to be able to get vaccinated via mobile teams and faith-based locations and also on site uh, with large employers, factories and things like that. He is fucking up the rollover, too, in terms of his communication about who is going to get vaccinated sooner than otherwise. Simone Racanelli, who has a pretty uh, amazing Twitter account, she spotted that like when Ford finally did say, okay, it's going to be a stay-at-home order, we, we hear you, we're, we're shutting down this and that, the provincial website had for a phase two who gets the vaccine, communities at greater risk. Initially, they had black and other racialized populations. Okay, let, let's stop with the code of this neighborhood or this postal code. We know who is getting this and dying more than everybody else, and it's black and racialized populations. So I have no problem with prioritizing those people, but that disappeared from the province's website, and she caught it. Mm. So, you know, the comments uh, in, in response to what I was tweeting and others was like, yeah, fuck Doug Ford, of course he's fucking this up, or just this idea of this bumbling guy who we hate, and I have no time for that. I don't care if we vote him out. Like, right now, all I care about is take the vaccines to the people who need them the most, take them to the factories, get this the fuck done, because there are empty seats in the vaccination centers in downtown Toronto. There, there's vaccine that is not going into people's arms. Fuck this guy. Fuck his cheesecake. I, 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 
you know, we, we, and we can talk about how the media played into that. And, and I think anybody who perpetuated that warm, soft, fuzzy Doug Ford image should be hanging their heads in shame right now because it's not a new story, as you point out, that mm-hmm. this is being fucked up. It was being fucked up all along. But I, I, I'm not interested in grumbling about mismanagement or chaos. It's not about incompetence at this point. No. His voters are getting vaccinated first. He doesn't care about black people and people are dying because of that. Yeah, I want to make sure that it's clear that I'm not begrudging the doctors for getting more coverage. That is a straight media criticism. The way that you're framing this, that, you know, this is no longer about Doug Ford's incompetency because it's clear he's incompetent. I think that that's really important. But it is not going to be through doctors speaking out that that changes anything. The entire way that Ontario has prioritized who gets what vaccine, like compare it to Quebec. So in Quebec, there's priority given to Indigenous people uh, on reserve. There was priority given to frontline healthcare workers. But by and large, it was by age. And so there has not been police officers, firefighters, chiropractors, all of the professional class that supports Doug Ford vaccinated in the first wave. And there hasn't been enough interrogation of that process. Instead, people have been focusing on phase two and who's getting into phase two because phase one was this foregone, oh, of course, police are essential workers. Of course, they should get the vaccine rather than saying, wait, wait a minute. What does that actually make any sense? And so, you know, in in Quebec, we are on track. We were on track uh, this past weekend to have vaccinated uh, 75 percent of all Quebecers over the age of 65. Mm -hmm. They were either vaccinated or they had um, an appointment to be vaccinated. And and that's very impressive. I mean, I don't know what Ontario's numbers are. I haven't seen how that looks in other provinces. That's a whole other criticism to have with how how media has covered this in a national perspective and how we really don't know how one jurisdiction compares to the other. But the way that the discussion has unfolded in Ontario, specifically around who gets to the front of the line in phase two, this has been very worrisome to me because the conversation has not followed the list of who has died the most within workplaces from COVID infection. And the disconnect between the fact that the deadliest industries being meatpacking and transportation and no accountability at all for the employers of these places where people had died. And instead, a lot of employers, especially, but then there's also a lot of employees are seeing the vaccine as the way to keep people safe rather than keeping people safe through personal protective equipment, other health and safety measures, right? So if we think of the teacher's situation, you know, if they're all vaccinated tomorrow, which would not be possible, um, but let's say it's possible, if they were all vaccinated tomorrow, they would still need three weeks off uh, until the actual vaccine takes as like full effect for one dose. They're in a classroom full of kids that will never be vaccinated or not anytime soon, right? There's no vaccinations that are are already uh, or approved yet for, for kids. So what actually does that mean? These places remain dangerous if community spread is high and they remain dangerous through the children and then of course infecting household contacts at home and that isn't the kind of conversation that we've had since the beginning the vaccine has been set up by premiers by the prime minister and by journalists to be seen as the end to this nightmare and unless we start thinking through what does that actually mean how long does that actually take what does that actually look like you know can someone please explain all of the supply chain questions and and what is happening with these vaccines sitting in freezers is that actually okay and are we wasting vaccines at the end of every day and how many appointments are going on unfulfilled there's so many questions that i'm afraid that people are getting really far into the details on the vaccine and they're forgetting that we're still living in a pandemic and all of the 
the measures that we have been calling for from the start, like paying people to stay home. When I say we, people who've been critical, paying people to stay home, paying people to isolate, increase the wages of people on the front lines, make sure the people on the front lines have adequate personal protective equipment and critically close the engines that are driving infections, which are large workplaces, large congregate workplaces that have never been touched by any of these mandatory closures because they have been exempt under the banner of essential. And this is the case in every province. This isn't just Doug Ford, which is also why it's really important that we don't make this about Doug Ford's incompetence because Jason Kenney, Scott Moe, Brian Pallister, John Horgan, Francois Legault it is all the exact same approach that these people are taking. These men, <laughs> these white guys are taking. Nora, what have you to duly note today? I want to duly note something that happened in the past week uh, in northern Mexico, close to the border of Arizona. So I'm not sure you've heard, but there was a head-on bus crash that killed 16 mine workers. They were workers at the Noche Buena mine, which is a mine that is owned by a company that's both based in Mexico and in the United Kingdom. And the, the accident happened on the third anniversary of Canada's very terrible and very similar bus accident that also killed 16 people. Of course, I'm talking about the the, the Humboldt Broncos bus, bus crash. And so uh, this news barely got mentioned in Canadian media. Um, the, the timing and the similarity of it, I think, really warrants that we pay attention to it, uh, especially because, you know, this is not a Canadian mine, but Canadian mines operate all the way around the world. And, you know, we, we don't know much about what happens within those resource extraction businesses. And so I really hope that um, if you didn't know about this, that you can look it up. And also that the Canadian government has extended, hopefully, at least its regards and maybe even an offer of support. Um, and I thought I would duly note that. I'm glad that you did. And I'm going to kind of like piggyback your duly noted to note to our listeners that Canada Land is really interested in Canadian mining and what Canadian mining companies are up to around the world. And we welcome information about that. Hmm. So jesse at canadaland.com is where you can send that. Duly noted, Nora. I would like to duly note that Tucker Carlson is very upset at Canada. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. What if your next door neighbor suddenly went dangerously insane and started holding people hostage in his house? Would you consider that threatening? Would you even notice it? Those are not theoretical questions. Something very much like that just happened in our national neighborhood. Canada took a dramatic move toward legitimately dangerous authoritarianism. In Canada, yes. On Monday, the country's prime minister, Justin Trudeau, outlined his government's new corona regulations. Canadians hoping to return to their country must be tested before and after takeoff, he said. Quote, if your test results come back positive, you'll need to immediately quarantine in designated government facilities. This is not optional. Designated government facilities. Now, when this happens in other countries, and it does, we call those facilities internment camps. But because this is Canada we're talking about, a place we assume is passive and polite and Anglo to the point of parody, no one thinks to use that term. In fact, no one thinks about it at all. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Nora, the question, what if your next door neighbor went violently insane? That is one hell of a question for an American to ask <laughs> yeah. about Canada. I think that's all I need to say. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> Duly noted. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Okay, so I want to play a clip for everybody, Nora. This is the CEO of Shaw Communications, Mr. Brad Shaw, testifying to the Parliamentary Committee for Industry, Science, and Technology and answering questions from Liberal MP Ali Esasi, who wants to know if letting Rogers gobble up Shaw is a good idea or a bad idea. I think this opens up new doors and, and, and with any capital investment, you, you have an opportunity to drive competition, innovation, new products and services. And really, I would say, make that digital divide a lot smaller for all of us. And, so and you're, and, and you're other, asserting less competition leads to more innovation. That's, that's your the right competition. Dynamic competition adds to that. And it doesn't have to be a number of players. I think when you have that dynamic competition in the market, which, you know, the federal government will be able to create the policies to be able to do that. And we still have a but regulatory this, but overhang. But this proposed merger undermines competition. Surely you would agree with that, correct? No, I don't. Uh, I, no, no, I don't agree. No. no you don't I agree think, that this proposed acquisition would, that would diminish competition? No, I think it's going to drive it in a way that is, is terribly exciting for Canadians. Well, I'm terribly excited. How terrible is your excitement, Nora? Oh, my, it's so terrible. I, I hate it. My excitement is making me hate <laughs> myself. Oh, it's fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. A merger of Canada's two major telecom giants, Rogers and Shaw, will lead to more innovation. Mm-hmm. Less competition will lead to more innovation. I, I like how he actually gets to the point of like, it'll lead to more competition. Between <laughs> who? 
If it's just Rogers, who's comp- like? This is an old story. When I covered tech, it was all all the CRTC procedural. Like it's boring, except for the fact that it affects every single Canadian. And this is decades of these government subsidized monoliths. From a media perspective, they don't even care about making content or selling content or selling ads against content because they control the pipes and they're just juicing us for uh, internet bills and cell phone bills. And we pay more than anybody in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a tax on the poor. That's a tax on everybody. It's just a deplorable situation that government after government has promised Canadians that they're going to fix. And we heard a liberal MP there sounding really incredulous and pushing back. But I have no faith that this will be anything but a rubber stamped acquisition. Oh, no question about it. Canada loves its mergers and it loves creating uh, these massive corporations that uh, at the end of the day will just put the screws to us even even harder. I mean, look what just happened with the Air Transat Air Canada deal. It wasn't a Canadian regulator that stopped it. It was the European regulator that was like, whoa, 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 this is not a good idea for air travel competition to have Air Canada gobble up one of the biggest uh, uh, vacation uh, airlines in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I have absolutely no faith. There's, there's um, no question that this is going to go through. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to to think of, you know, the Rogers and the Bells of the world, because, of course, once this happens, it'll really be Rogers and Bell um, in the main competition. Then, of course, there's other players and depending where you are in Canada. But these are corporations that also own um, media. They also uh, both took hundreds of thousands of dollars in the wage subsidy from the federal government. Uh, they both have billions in profits. So we are talking about um, an incredible amount of money for people to make uh, off of our backs, which is exactly why our cell phone bills are so high. And of course, they're going to go higher if there's no competition or if there's even less competition once this deal goes through. The rent is too damn high. Here are the actual numbers. Bell earned uh, $2.7 billion in 2020. Rogers, $1.6 billion. TELUS, $1.3 billion. And Shaw, little Shaw, $688 million. I guess they're getting gobbled up. This was brought to our attention by uh, listener Jen Jeffries. The Waterloo Region Record published a story. What the fuck is this? Here's the headline. Canada's telecom among world's best in affordability (laughs) and value by Robert Giz. I'm sure it's pronounced Giz. It's G-H-I-Z. I'm sorry. Grow up, Justin. No, it's Giz for sure. Is it Giz? (laughs) Okay. Who is Robert Giz? According to his LinkedIn, uh, he's the president and CEO of the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association. So first of all, like, what are you like? Does is this an opinion that we need a contributor to the Waterloo Region record? He's a contributor. He just likes to write. He, it's, a, it's a hobby of his. No, he's an interested player. Why does he like? Does he need this platform? But even if we get over that, like, okay, maybe captains of industry can write the odd editorial. He's fucking lying. It's not true. It's demonstrably not true. There's like a report out of Finland last year. We're not just bad. We're the worst. TELUS, Bell, and Rogers Canada were the operators with the least competitive monthly prices in the world. In the world. So it's bad. And every time they kind of like try to finagle like, 
we're going to create a little bit of extra bandwidth. And if some, you know, Egyptian investor can come and start up a wind mobile, then we'll have competition in the wireless space. Three years later, it's acquired and it's renamed Freedom, hilariously. And it's just a sub-brand of a big telecom company. Or we're going to we're gonna set aside a little bit of space where Rogers has to let like a tech-savvy piggyback and offer more competitive. And they're just marginalized and Rogers makes the service like, you know, you got to wait a lot longer. Tech-savvy service is good, but they're reliant on Rogers. None of this has worked. None of the mechanisms by which our government, uh, the regulatory framework, has tried to introduce competition into telecom has worked. So there's only two ways to go. There's only two ways to go, Nora. Mm. We can nationalize it mm-hmm. or we can laissez-faire. <laughs> we can laissez-faire the motherfucker. That, your French is really something else. It really is. <laughs> which I'll argue for either one of those, by the way. Yeah. Nationalization or completely busted open. I don't care if Canadian companies own Canadian infrastructure. Let the Americans in. I'll argue either one, left uh. or the right. You get to pick. I wonder which one you're going to go for. Uh, well, I mean, I would much prefer to argue the nationalization one. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, go for it. <laughs> so, wh- like, re- all right, we're going to really, like, that's that's the solution. The government is going to take over telecom. I'm sure that my service will improve if the government is in charge. I'm sure that, like, the tech support will be great if, if it's the government. Or if my internet goes out, I got to call the government. How's that going to work? Well, I mean, let's not pretend that uh, government-owned telecommunications is new in this country, right? Bell comes from being in Crown Corporation at one point. I mean, Robert Giz was the premier of PEI and his father was also the premier of PEI. So these folks might actually have a, an opinion on nationalizing stuff too. If you were running a province and you might as well give yourself a telecom business as well. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, in Canada, some of the best service is actually offered through SaskTel if you're in that province. And SaskTel is a crown corporation is still. So there's, it's not the case that a government corporation by nature of being a government corporation is going to be poorly run. You can have a poorly run government corporation. There's no question about that. But these highly lucrative um, and, and frankly, absolutely critical services, um, at the very least, there needs to be a, um, a, a government intervention in the market. And so offering people a public option uh, is, I think, step one, making sure that we actually did have a national public option that would be able to have the lowest rates because they don't actually have to pay shareholders. And that would help to drive um, the prices down a little bit from the, the big players. But uh, if we're talking about total nationalization. I think the whole fight over 5G and national security and sovereignty and, and and Huawei trying to build its 5G communications all across the world. I mean, this is actually a very important conversation for Canada to have right now. And, you know, if we take the laissez-faire uh, approach, um, that does mean that, a lot, you know, basically just outsourcing our uh, domestic telecommunications capacity and and corporations to the world, that raises a lot of very difficult uh, geopolitical questions. But on the nationalization side, I mean, if these profits, well, first of all, if we eliminated these profits and just subsequently reduced the cost given to every Canadian, that would be a huge benefit. If we had a national infrastructure for 5G or for, you know, a national infrastructure for internet, we could actually make sure that internet got to remote regions, regardless of cost, because this would be rolled into the national corporation. Uh, And we would also probably be able to find uh, a way to fund independent of government, but through a crown corporation, start to refund media in this country too. Start to refund media. We have right now uh, a a federal government that is making like uh, a power grab into media like we've never seen before, where very little media is going to be outside of the influence subsidy regulation of the federal government with the plans that are going through right now. I am terrified of also putting the pipes themselves 
in the hands of the government. I mean, you bring up the threat of the surveillance, uh, you know, and, and China through Huawei infrastructure. I mean, the China example is an interesting one in this case because they have the state very, very much wound up in their telecom industry and they have a firewall, right? Like governments who control the Internet use that control. So that's something to consider, even if we like, you know, uh, can accept that maybe a government-run uh, internet infrastructure wouldn't suck, which I'm not there with you necessarily yet. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you've still got like huge questions about information control through that. I don't know. I think that like the only way that you topple a motherfucker is with a motherfucker. Like, let's let Verizon come and take a shot at Rogers. Like, m- why is more government intervention the answer here? It's government intervention that got us into this mess in the first place. Like, let these bastards fight it out, and you know. I don't trust any of them. It's not like Americans love their Comcast bills, but there will be very rapid competition on price if you open up the Canadian market to these voracious American predators. You know, we're like, it's like another California that they could come in and just (laughs) undercut our players. And, you know, immediately people would see a benefit in their pocketbook. And like, I really hate how these issues get boiled down to like some kind of consumer like, ah, the Canadian will benefit in the pocketbook. It's, I agree with you completely. We're talking about issues of like access to your basic civil liberties, access to education, access to the job market. Internet access is be, like, I, I'm with you on like, it's a human right and the digital divide uh, is is real. It perpetuates existing inequities. And, uh, you know, I don't know, like a market-based solution might, mm-hmm. I don't know, if we're just trying to solve this thing. You know what we need? What? We need Starlink. We need, we need Elon Musk. <laughs> we, we have need like Elon a whole Musk. new technology to come. And they're, they're doing that already. Isn't it like a little pilot project? Like, isn't it like a little, if we're going to have a government intervention, maybe it's like the government needs to come and like, just like, let Elon Musk have free reign to like scale up Starlink across the country. Is that a terrible idea? I know people don't like him. Yes. It's bad. Bad idea? Bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to push back on this idea that government intervention got us here in the first place. Um, no, it, that's not true. <laughs> you know, the government intervention is not going to stop this merger. Government intervention did not build the t- national telecommunications infrastructure uh, in a poor way. They built it in a successful way such that it was possible to privatize and become completely lucrative through Bell. Um, and so there's actually like a long history of very successful government funded public infrastructure that actually found uh, underpins the basis of communication in this country. And, you know, we have a, we have a vast country. It's a country that communication becomes really, really important to be able to make sure that there is access to information, there is access to health care, and there is access to education. And the government uh, washing its hands of that is actually being quite negligent. Just to clarify, uh, when I say that, that government intervention got us here in the first place, the tele- situation we have is absolutely crony capitalism where the government in, in, in both in terms of massive subsidies to our big telecom companies um, right-of-way rules that allow them to like you know put their pipes on our property whether we like it or not uh, protected markets where Americans aren't allowed to come in and compete with them there's just so many mechanisms by which they've created the situation because of government protections you know it's really interesting because the, the question about whether or not the federal government would uh, yeah, fence off the the internet or close down parts of the internet to Canadians. I mean, they're not even taxing Facebook. Like, I don't think that the idea of them actually doing anything close to authoritarian is is even in the realm of possibility right now. And we actually do need regulation. We're seeing the the impact of these enormous corporations basically having their way with us, and we are doing nothing. We're not able to regulate them. We're not able to tax them. 
for when you buy a Facebook ad. Like I was fighting with Google all morning just so my kids could have online education to a school that is four blocks away. And, you know, like it is so omnipresent in our lives that if we continue down this direction, it's only going to get worse. And I fail to see how government intervention at this point could possibly make things even worse. Uh, it, it's so weird uh, for somebody who's who's so critical of power structures to have so much faith in government that that would never be a thing. <laughs> democracy. I have faith in democracy, okay? I think the government's a bunch of shit. And that's our shortcuts for this week. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I can be emailed about any of it at jesse at candidaland.com, and I do read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Nora, where can people find you? You can find me at uh, sandyandnora.com for the Sandy and Nora Talk Politics podcast. And I am at Twitter at NoLore, N-O-L-O-R-E. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do at the Canada Land Network and you want to receive all of our podcasts without ads on them and some socks or stuff like that, it's super easy. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. We rely on your support. Go do it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.